Live from the Great White North, this is the Canadian Investor, where you take control of your own portfolio and gain the confidence you need to succeed in the markets. Hosted by Braden Dennis and Simon Belanger. The Canadian Investor Podcast. What's up? I'm Braden Dennis, as always, joined by Simon Belanger. And Simon, I was texting you today in my car, and Siri said, Simon Bellinger. So I really wanted to call you that on the podcast, but uh, maybe next time. It, d- it doesn't yeah. have the French accent. I'll tell you that for free. I mean, it it does even a worse job than I do saying your name, and that's that's impressive. You know what probably does a worse job is Google Maps. If you go through Montreal, when they try to say the streets, uh, it's pretty hilarious. I would, uh, <laughs> <laughs> I would uh, <laughs> just try that out once if you go to Montreal. I could see that. All right. Well, Simon and I, we are caffeinated up this afternoon for the recording. I thought I was caffeinated up on two coffees here, and Simon is on his sixth coffee. You, like, I don't even know how you're not shaking. Uh, that is that is truly impressive. Uh, you know what? I, I do know, though, if you drink black coffee, it's good for you. So uh, at least that's what I'm going to continue to tell myself because I absolutely love coffee. We got a fun episode for you guys today. We're talking about a few uh, really relevant and actionable topics, like the number of stocks that we personally hold and what we think is a, a reasonable amount of stocks to hold. Um, and then we are going to get in this podcast. I sat down with Eric Sloan, the chief revenue officer at the NEO Exchange, to talk about the very popular. CDRs, the amazing new way to buy U.S. companies in Canadian dollars on Canadian exchanges with this new invention that they teamed up with CIBC on. So I figured I want to know more about this myself. So let's let's get Eric here on the podcast, and it's it's a really great discussion. So. Uh, that is in this episode. Later, we will kick it over to the interview. All right, Simon, let's, let's start off here with the number of stocks to hold. And, and I'll go first here, but, but chime in at any time. Obviously, this is not financial advice. This is completely up to each person and their situation, their risk tolerance, and what you feel comfortable with. So how many stocks is a good number to have? And I, I thought to myself, well, how many do I own as of today? And I own today exactly 17 stocks. Simon, you and I did not plan this at all, but you own exactly 17 stocks as well. Yeah, yeah, that's it. I mean, I'm excluding the ones that my wife owns, but uh, the ones that I own in my own personal portfolio, I was counting. And yes, 17 exactly. I am excluding here ETFs, but uh, individual companies exact same as you. That is just a random coincidence. I, I, there's nothing really to don't look too into that. Uh, but that is the number of stocks that I hold today of individual positions. Now, I actually think of it more as 14 stocks because I couple a few like duopolies. For instance, Visa and MasterCard are the exact same investment thesis for me. Moody's and S&P Global are largely the same thesis. Constellation Software and Topicus are basically the same company. Um, so 
when I think about that, it's probably actually around 14 positions that I actually think of as, you know, in investments because I do couple some of these very similar businesses. Now, this is a completely arbitrary number, like 17. Now, there are a few companies I would absolutely buy today and not sell any other position. So perhaps it gets up to 20 at some point. And I change my mind so much on what's the perfect stock portfolio construction and, and how many names are in there. But at the end of the day, it really is just a, such a personal decision. And it doesn't really matter that much unless you go out of a range that I think is just too many. So we'll talk about that. I analyze businesses full time. And a lot of that research, you know, it's for, by the way, it's available uh, at stratosphereinvesting.com. So given that, I know these 17 companies well, and I want a piece of their future. And I do that via their publicly listed stock. I could see myself having as much as 25, to be honest, and that'd be fine. But beyond that, I think it gets a bit, bit silly. This has, if you have, say, more than 40, it's like just own an index fund and spend zero seconds per year managing your portfolio. Um, you can you know, just buy the NASDAQ 100, own 100 stocks and, and literally spend zero seconds per year managing your portfolio. Now, some people are hyper-concentrated. Say they own like 10 or less stocks. That's cool too. I mean, I'm super concentrated as well, uh, just in the position waiting. So I'm, I'm good with that. The problem with that is that there's concentration risk. If I really love 15 ideas at any time and it's hard to compete, you know, with with a portfolio of less than 10 if all 10 do extremely well from a performance perspective. That being said, concentration can create generational wealth. But if your thesis is wrong in any one of these ideas, that really hurts your returns. So my opinion, just my opinion, is the sweet spot is between about 15 and 25 companies for self-directed investors who are taking this pretty seriously. If you go super concentrated, that's cool. Just remember that you know concentration is the absolute creator and destruction of wealth. Um, and on that same note, rule number one is, is don't lose money. Rule number two is don't forget number one. So consistent compounding requires consistency, as the name suggests. So if you have a big setback, it can it can really hurt you. Yeah, yeah. Those are all really good points. And yeah, definitely for you who's doing that full time, you definitely have the time to uh, to look at different companies a bit more than I would. And I'll be honest, for me, the threshold is typically 15. So at the end of the year, what I usually do is I'll review my portfolio and you know, if I'm too far off from that uh, personal threshold, then I'll probably remove a couple of holdings that I don't have, let's say, as strong of a conviction anymore. Um, so that's a good approach for people. If you set a certain number of stocks that you really want to have in your portfolio, once you get over that, you know, it's a good exercise to just look back at it, look at certain holdings that you may not have a as strong as a conviction as you first did when you started that position and potentially remove those holdings. Like Braden said, it's really a time commitment thing. I think for, for a lot of people, are you able to put that time in? Are you able to keep up with those businesses and a good indicator? If you're, you don't have a hard and fast rule of a number of holding is you look at your portfolio and then you realize, Oh, I forgot I had that business in my portfolio. That's probably 
that's probably a good indicator that uh, you know you may want to reduce your the number of holdings a little bit if you forget certain business that you're invested in. Yeah, if you forget what they are and forget what they do, <laughs> it is time to either reassess or uh, perhaps you know put some of that weighting in more high conviction names, which is a perfect segment into position weighting and. Just a real candid conversation we can have here, Simon, about how we we think about position weighting. For me, this is what I do. I use conviction as a non-scientific ranking system of all the companies in my portfolio. I literally put a conviction number of between 1 and 10 of all of them, and I keep it updated. It's basically the conviction score that I'm applying is... My confidence that I under that I one understand the investment thesis, two my confidence in being able to reliably predict what this company will look like and the industry will look like in five to ten years. If I have low confidence in what the the industry and what the company looks like in five to ten years, then that's that's low low conviction. But if if you know if it should be business as usual for a fantastic business, you know, continued compounding. Like like most conglomerates, for instance, that's a higher conviction name for me. I mean, there's in, built-in diversification to the to the name and, you know, it should be compounding as per usual. But if the story, let's use the Facebook example for right now. I I lowered my conviction in Facebook. I don't own a position, but we ranked them on Stratosphere. The reason why you know, they just grew revenue at 35%. But right now, our conviction in the ability to understand what's going to happen in the metaverse is very low. And it should be low for everyone. It's it's very speculative for a company worth over a trillion dollars. It is quite speculative. And we have very little ability to guess what that future looks like. So that would be an example of, of lower conviction. And so I try to size my positions in a ranking of conviction. Now that's what that's what I do, Simon. Yeah, yeah, and I think conviction is definitely a big part of the per position weighting because of course you want to make sure that something that's pretty heavily weighted in your portfolio you understand quite well, you believe in the business, you believe that the business will keep growing, uh, you know, two, three, five, 10, 15, 20 years in the future. And what I wanted to add on that, it's important to, well, in my view, position weighting is your biggest tool to mitigate risk. A lot of people think about risk, about a single stock, you know, oh, this stock, you know, you can take Let's say Virgin Galactic, right? They don't have much revenue right now. So, you know, it's pretty easy to look at them and say it's a pretty risky business to invest in. Well, yeah, if it don't if it's 50% of your portfolio, I'd probably venture to say, you know, you're pretty crazy to to have that much in this one business because it's super risky. They're pre-revenue at this point, they're not profitable. A lot of things could go wrong, could easily go bankrupt at some point in the future. The future is unknowable. Exactly. So you don't know what's going to happen there. But, you know, take the same business, Virgin Galactic, and say someone wants a piece of it, but they make it 1% of their portfolio. Then, 
you know, the risk is really different here because, yes, it's the same business, but if it goes belly under, goes bankrupt, that's fine. As long as the rest of your portfolio is not doing the same thing and it's not overly heavily weighted in really growth stocks, you'll be fine, right? You won't be hurt too much. I think that's really a good good train of thought for people to think about when they're really considering position sizing, especially for extremely volatile companies um, that could be high valuation. It could be also companies, like I said, that are pre-revenues. If you want to share in those, that's fine, but make sure that you position your weighting accordingly. The bigger the position sizing, the higher the risk. Yeah, that's a good point. And I think a lot about correlation risk too with with that is for your Virgin Galactic example is that's a, there's a certain factor on that company which is super high growth, super super speculative. And if the market is crushing super speculative type bets, you know, they're all going to go down regardless of what Virgin Galactic produces, it will actually have very little to the real business fundamentals because it's moving on factor and momentum, right? And it's the same reason why I believe very strongly in two extremely expensive stocks. Those stocks are the Trade Desk, ticker TTD, and ticker U for the business Unity, the gaming engine. Both of them are up over 10% today, Simon. Not a big deal. Um, but if I look at those two companies, they're super high growth, but they're crazy expensive. They trade both at like 40 plus times sales. I mean, that could be the right multiple given their growth and, and what the future looks like for, in this case, uh, digital advertising spend and uh, the gaming engine and everything that, that that presents. But I have them sized accordingly. I'm going to capture upside if my thesis is correct, and it it won't be that big of a deal that I don't have it as a super high concentration of my portfolio. And those two names, from a factor perspective, will probably move in the short term relatively similar, even if their business fundamentals are not similar. You know what I mean, Simon? Like, there's a there's a certain factor being applied to them, uh, especially with these high growth, super expensive, like fifty times sales companies, which seems ridiculous that I even own them. But I do own two of them, and I probably should own more based on the recent performance. But that is the kind of thing I'm talking about, where they're not sized as huge. They're they're sized as two of the smallest position weightings in in those seventeen stocks. Yeah, and I think that's exactly how you need to do it. Like you're, I would venture to say I'm gonna guess it's probably in the sing, low single digits in terms of percentage of uh, weighting of your portfolio. They're like two and four. Yeah, yeah. Small. There you go. So I think you'll survive if it uh, each stock gets uh, you know cut fifty percent in price. Like you won't panic, you won't sell, and you know we'd be having a different conversation if each represented uh, let's say 15 20 percent of your portfolio then of course it's a completely different conversation but that's something to keep in mind that's probably your that to me is your biggest tool whenever you're investing to mitigate risk just position sizing will be able to help you that it'll help you do that that's right all right simon I know we're going off script here but this is uh this i just realized this is how i want to structure this let's cut to the interview with Eric Sloan, the Chief Revenue Officer 
of the Neo Exchange to talk about the CDRs, which is frankly an awesome invention and innovation for Canadian investors. So let's let's hear from Eric. He's really well spoken. It was a great chat, and uh, we'll see you in a few uh, a few minutes after to discuss a few other topics here. But let, let's let's kick it to Eric. It's a great chat. Mr. Eric Sloan, welcome to the podcast. Really happy to have you on here. I cannot tell you the amount of requests that we have had from listeners uh, on the show asking about the Neo Exchange and what CDRs are. So what better person to bring on than yourself to talk about it right from the source directly? How are we doing, Eric? Uh, doing great and a uh, pleasure to meet. Thank you very much for, for having us on the podcast. Absolutely. So let's let's dive right into this. Uh, but before we talk about Neo and the CDRs, who 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 are you, Eric, and and what brought you to working on what I believe is an important project that you guys are beginning right now? Well, thank you, uh, thank you very much. I'm our chief revenue officer here at Neo. Uh, I've been with the organization coming up on nine years now. Uh, time flies. Might have had a little more hair when uh, when I started that that journey. <laughs> Uh, but I've, I've seen the organization through a number of different uh, different lenses. I started uh, running our product management team, kind of assembling all the tech uh, and, and strategy around our organization, handing that out uh, to the street, and really getting the foundational Neo Stock Exchange out in the world. And a few years after we, we launched, I flipped over to the sales side of our organization, started growing the ETF franchise uh, for Neo. And uh, now currently sitting as our, our chief revenue officer responsible for attracting all kinds of new, wonderful opportunities to come and list or trade or, or consume data from the Neo Stock Exchange here in Toronto. That's fantastic. So let's jump into that then. I think that's a good place to start is defining what the Neo Exchange is. And uh, we'll, we'll jump into CDRs after. But what, what is the Neo Exchange and what are you guys trying to accomplish broadly? Well, it's, a, it's a fun question, uh, and in, in our eyes, when we started looking at, at the business uh, and really the Canadian landscape and, and globally uh, exchanges around the world, started looking at where we could have an impact, where there were gaps in the market, and, and where there was something that we as an organization could, could do about it. Uh, we looked at all the different parts of the capital markets ecosystem, uh, trading, we looked at market data, we looked at the whole capital formation process, the act of taking companies out to public markets and, and really took a hard look at uh, what we thought was working and where we thought change was needed. Uh, if I speak about our origin story specifically, NEO is backed by some of the largest buy-side pension plans and asset managers in the country, names you'd recognize, OMERS, CI Investments, BCIMC, IGM, one of the largest mutual fund managers in, in Canada. Uh, we've got some large banks in our midst, Royal Bank of Canada, Barclays, Virtu Financial, uh, and uh, one that maybe seems unintuitive, but uh, definitely a fit in, in our world, uh, BCE, the parent company of Bell Canada, also a global telecoms provider and something that comes in uh, very handy in, in the exchange world these days. Um, but the key for us, our shareholder group is majority buy side owned. And, and that means for us as an organization, we're very focused on doing what's best for our majority stakeholder, long-term investors in the business. Uh, they gave us the mandate to build something that was different. And if you look at the way we've assembled our stock market, we try and do things that level the playing field for long-term investors. 
uh, and that shows up in a number of different ways uh, across the, the Neo Stock Exchange. If you look at trading, maybe two two quick sound bites. You know, folks have probably read a lot about HFTs and access to markets uh, in ways that uh, may be deemed uh, unfair these days. We built Neo to prioritize natural investors to trade first. It uh, doesn't matter if uh, an order got there a second, a minute, an hour before you. If it's the same price and there's a competition to trade, we'll always prioritize a natural investor to trade first. Um, we deliver our market data, real-time streaming quotes out to market. And then obviously the way we work with the, the corporate community and asset managers in Canada, fundamentally very different, service-oriented. But we're, we're really stemming up competition here in Canada against our, our major incumbent, the Toronto Stock Exchange. Got it. Okay, understood. And now what has come out of this is a highly requested feature on this podcast, as I'm mentioning, and, and we can we can get to, to what those are. Um, and I think it's important that we're having this conversation, not only because people the people want to know, Eric. The people, I'm telling you, I can't even explain how many people are asking me about this stuff, not only on the Stratosphere forum, but also, you know, directly through on the podcast. And my answer so far has been, I'm, I'm, I'm talking to Eric next week, and I don't know the answers. I'm going to, I'm going to tell you them when I know the answers. So as much as the listeners, I'm, I'm a sponge right now, and, and I'm, I don't know all these answers. So I'm excited to ask you. So, can we first define what the CDR product is, what it stands for, and just the the high level elevator pitch on on the benefits of of, of what they are? Absolutely, uh, CDRs. The definition: Canadian Depository Receipts. Depository Receipts of the business. It's actually a long standing global industry. Uh, some of the larger European companies uh, in, in Europe have chosen to use depository receipts to go public in the U.S. Um, you know, some names that uh, might, might come to mind, you look at like Nestle or Volkswagen, they, they would trade on U.S. markets as a depository receipt. For Canadian investors... Our access to global companies is, is somewhat limited. Uh, we've got pretty good access to U.S. markets, some shortcomings, but trying to step outside of U.S. markets is uh, still, still a big challenge for Canadian investors. CDRs, I think, are a tremendous way to tackle some of those, those barriers or uh, boundaries that we haven't yet uh, overcome uh, to enable Canadians to diversify their investments into global companies. Um, to start with, you know, if, if you look at uh, kind of the foundational benefits or, or elements attached to it, CDRs are actually listed on a stock exchange. Um, so, you know, they look like any one of our neo exchange uh, publicly traded companies or any other Canadian company you might otherwise buy listed on a stock market. Uh, they would look the same as, as ETFs listed on an exchange. They get a ticker, they have a price, they have a quote. You can interact with them uh, through through that, but CDRs go a step further, and uh, I'd love to take full credit for the uh, the CDR initiative because I think it's super cool. But uh, full credit goes to CIBC, and uh, perhaps on uh, another podcast worthwhile uh, to have them in to go straight into the weeds in, in due course as well. 
CDRs were really designed to enable Canadians to buy those global companies and, and address three key issues. One, Canadian investors do not have uh, necessarily access to fractional share trading of U.S. companies. So you look at a stock like Amazon.com. It's what, $3,500 U.S., roughly $4,300, $4,400 Canadian. And as Canadian investors, you have to buy a single share. Well, that's a pretty expensive trade. If you've only got a $10,000, $15,000 portfolio, do you really believe you want to own 30% of your, your mandate in, in Amazon? So the first thing CDRs do is they fractionalize Amazon.com stock and, and others into a, a more affordable uh, ticket for an investor. So as an example, Amazon is available in CDR format, ticker is AMZN, same ticker as the parent company, uh, but at one two hundredth of a share. So you can buy uh, that fractional share for 20 some odd dollars instead of $4,000 uh, Canadian. The second thing they do, and I think this is also very powerful, but maybe not always observed from a, a Canadian investor perspective, they're purchasable in Canadian dollars. So if you look at an Amazon CDR, you buy it in CAD. If you want to go buy Amazon.com stock, you've got to convert your CAD to US dollars. You're going to pay an FX for that. And it's going to be the retail rate that your banking or brokerage institution would give you. CDR transforms that. You're actually getting an institutional FX rate with, uh, with the CDR purchase. And in fact, CIBC is taking care of that transformation for you. So first benefit, fractionalization. Second benefit, currency, more efficient currency conversion. And the third, and I think this is going to be the really interesting one longer term, CDRs come with a Canadian dollar hedge, uh, which means in, in the tagline that has been out in the street now for a little bit, I think it's really a cool one and illustrates the point. You own the company's performance, not the currency fluctuations between Canadian and U.S. dollars, which in effect you are buying when you buy the underlying U.S. Amazon stock uh, if you weren't using a CDR. Those three, yeah, and th that's really well laid out. So thank you for that. So fractionalization, uh, currency, and then currency hedging as well. And I, I think that what this is doing and has, you know, like you said, credit to CIBC for some of this innovation and, and you guys as well, is you guys are really reducing the friction and some of these pain points that Canadian investors have. Because, yeah, you're right. If you want to own some of the best companies in the world today, they trade on U.S. exchanges and they trade at very high price tags, which is not a structural problem for Canadian broker, sorry, for U.S. brokerages that have fractional share offerings. And those innovations have happened south of the border and Canadian investors are stuck owning primarily, which is a, a problem that we talk about quite often on this show, is they're stuck owning primarily Canadian companies and primarily overweight certain industries because they don't have access to some of the best companies in the world for the reasons that we just list uh, that we just listed so that that's a that's awesome so what are the associated fees with the cdrs versus going out to buy the underlying stock i think you pointed out an a good one right out of the gate which is the actual conversion rates getting a institutionalized conversion rate out of the gate compared to a brokerage is, is probably 
uh, very useful. That's that's one for sure. It's a bit an intangible one. You you wouldn't know it uh, until you go to move your Canadian dollars into U.S. dollars, and, and that's where it's going to pick up. Um, you still pay you know a commission cost with your your brokerage to trade uh, Canadian listed securities. I imagine for many of the the discount channels, you'd pay the same commission for a CDR purchase that you were looking to do. Um, the vehicle itself, and this is really the, the cool part, so I'm, it's all documented in a very long uh, document called the Base Shelf Prospectus for CDRs. There are no management fees. Uh, so that's maybe one area where uh, it, it would differentiate from what you might otherwise uh, in, interpret from a, an ETF where they have an MER. Um, CDRs themselves do not have a management fee attached. So you don't pay anything for the fractionalization. You don't pay anything for... Uh, the currency conversion, but what you do pay for is the currency hedge. Uh, that currency hedge, as stated in the documents, has a maximum 60 basis point or 0.6% fee annualized, and it can't exceed it. Uh, and that, that's actually pretty pretty important for an investor to both be aware of and, and understand. And I think that's also where the service is. Uh, at the end of it, the, uh, the currency hedges run daily which is different than most other products that are monthly hedges or, or even uh, less frequent than that. You're getting a daily hedge to manage uh, the FX currency between the Canadian and US dollar so that you truly own the company's performance longer term. That's that's where you pay for a CDR. Okay, yeah, that's that's really helpful to know. So we're talking about 60 basis points or 0.6% for the currency hedging feature is, uh, is where the the fees are attached to and i think that that that's a reasonable expectation given the fact that you said it's it's daily that's happening daily and that could be you know one of the big benefits of the actual product so okay that's good so what are the companies that are listed today how many listings are on there we just talked about amazon can you speak to the other listings that we have uh in cdr format right now Certainly. There's uh, there's nine other live in, in market today, so a full shelf of 10 uh, available now. Uh, there are more coming, but to give you some color on the names that are out and trading in CDR format today, Amazon.com, uh, we spoke about. You've got Google, uh, so it's Alphabet Inc. Uh, that's, that's in CDR form. Tesla, Apple, Netflix, Facebook. Uh, now Metaverse, or, or will be renamed Metaverse in CDR format soon enough. Uh, Microsoft, PayPal, Visa, and Disney uh, to round out the, the top 10. Um, as I said, more coming, uh, and, and you, know, you kind of get the, the feeling for it. Uh, there's, there's a lot of opportunity here, and as a result, the more names uh, up and available, the more people find out about them, depending on the theme or sector that folks are looking for. There's tons, tons to do in this space. So, and correct me if I'm wrong, but this is a smart strategy because these are high volume, large mega cap companies, everything from, you know, the trillion dollar firms and down to the payments companies, PayPal, Visa, and, and, and Disney too, as well. So that's a, that's pretty awesome. And I like the strategy that you guys have, have gone with. So how many, I mean, maybe you can't give this away, but how many are we expecting to have? Are, are you guys hoping down the roadmap to have, you know, every listed security or is there going to be some market cap cutoff? 
Um, and if I'm getting into your product roadmap that you can't share, just feel free to let me know. Oh, not at all. Some some elements are, are findable, and uh, you know we, we keep a close eye on how far the internet tends to to read into public documents. But uh, you know, obviously, a, a shelf of ten is definitely not the beginning nor the end of, of this journey. Uh, it is CIBC's uh, mission and, and vision, obviously, to deliver more of these out to market. I think if you know we were looking at somewhere in the range of twenty before the year is finished, that'd be a, a reasonable outcome. Um, you know, I think reasonably speaking as well, like there's probably a universe of 40 or 50 securities that would make sense. The most interesting, attractive ones to Canadian investors and, and financial advisors, CDR format is going to make a ton of sense. And then, you know, from there, it's, it's probably going to be on a request basis. If somebody's got a real problem they're, they're trying to solve, if we see a lot of demand from investors, we have a, a nice little tiny link on our website that uh, investors can click through and suggest names. I'm sure we'll get a few from you and, and your listeners as well. Send them through. Uh, those all help in terms of how we prioritize and, and send those back to, to CIBC to actually prioritize feature product to come out to market. So don't don't be shy. Yeah, it makes sense. Getting that user feedback is very, very critical. So right now, these are issued by CIBC. Do you have to be a CIBC Investors Edge customer to buy them or are they available to all the major retail brokerages today? That is a great question. Uh, The short answer, they are available to anyone. Uh, And they are on every single discount platform, all the major banks, all the independents, look at Quest Trade, Interactive Brokers, uh, they're in Wealth Simple Trade uh, as well. So all the places that I would say the aspiring trader uh, routine, do-it-yourself or investor, running this for your own purposes for years, anywhere you might go to look to trade stock listed on, frankly, any Canadian exchange, including our own, you'll be able to find CDRs. Um, conversely, too, and, and think about it from from this perspective, you know, the, the main challenge that we, we started uh, hearing about when we started working on this with the team was for the retail investor. But a lot of financial advisors, uh, portfolio managers have embraced CDRs as well. When, when you kind of look at the problems they might face, none of their solutions support fractional shares either. So if you're opening up a, a smaller or medium sized account and you want to try and fit some of these big U.S. companies in, to a fifty or hundred thousand dollar portfolio, whether it's you know kids that are, are growing up, starting investing early, um, you know the the traditional large cap U.S. names in their native format may not fit very well. So leveraging a CDR to start those portfolios out starts to make a ton of sense. We're seeing a lot of advisors starting to come into this business running U.S. model portfolios, where uh, the the CDR can make a ton of sense for them and bring their investors access to major U.S. large cap names. And in a day like today where these fantastic businesses like like Alphabet, the Google parent company, or Amazon, that trades for thousands of dollars USD, retail investors, long-term retail investors, really lose out on the ability to dollar cost average these names. And we talk about how important dollar cost averaging is and, and a, a set schedule for a do-it-yourself investor to invest on a monthly, quarterly basis with you know the extra income that they generate. They have a strict savings plan and they, they're ready to 
make it happen with their money. And then they look at a share of Amazon or, or, or Google and say, I can buy maybe one of these a year, maybe, and then only own that company. And that's a, that's a real reality for, for lots of folks. Uh, and it's, it doesn't mean, you know, you're not in, in a high percentile of, of net worth. It's just the reality of $4,000 just lying around to buy one share of one company creates a lot of friction. So I think that that's a really good idea. Um, let's get into how they work operationally. We've had a couple questions from listeners and, and on Twitter when I said that I was interviewing you. Some folks were curious about the dividend payments. Are they distributed similarly to how it works for an ETF? You know, the underlying assets pay dividends and then are paid out via distributions on the the vehicle that you're investing it in through. You uh, you nailed it. All all the same things are there. Uh, the only nuance, perhaps, to highlight. So you need the underlying company to pay a dividend. Uh, not all the CDRs right. that are in market today do. I think we've now got a couple that are out there, like Microsoft or. Apple, I think, pays a, a dividend as well. That's right. When those are declared in the U.S., those will get flowed back through to the CDR and paid out to Canadian CDR holders. Uh, they will be paid out in CAD, though. Uh, so just just keep that in mind. If you're looking for a U.S. dividend, uh, you're, you're going to receive your CDR payment in Canadian dollars. Right. Okay. Makes sense. And so w- to follow up on that, um, we try not to bore people to sleep with tax implications on this podcast, but it's important for a scenario like this. What would be the tax implications, say, on uh, Apple, who pays a U.S. dollar dividend and then would be subject to withholding tax regularly if it was held in a uh, non-registered or a TFSA? How, how, is, how are those things kind of working operationally? That's that's also a good question, and actually, you know, broadly speaking, not only for the dividend but for the actual CDR itself, it is still considered uh, U.S. Or, or foreign property from a Canadian investor perspective. Gotcha. So, uh, even though it's available in CAD in a CDR, uh, you are still holding a, a foreign security. So, uh, word to the investor crowd: make sure you do have that W eight uh, Ben file uh, on hand with your broker, so that the right withholding tax. Uh, is calculated and held back. Um, otherwise, it's it's perhaps less exciting. That's right. Yeah. And for those who are wondering that the W eight form, I'm assuming, I know for me when I my join a brokerage, that is filled out and required basically upon uh, signing up. So don't freak out. You've probably already done the form. Don't worry. <laughs> when you signed your life away on the uh, sign up of a discount brokerage, you probably already filled that out. Okay, Eric, well, this has been super useful, uh, not only to the listeners, but to myself. And I'm really understanding the story. And now that I understand, you know, what the the fees are associated with it, the Canadian hedging, the fractional shares, um, all the friction being reduced for Canadian investors to invest in these large cap US listed names makes a ton of sense. So we're really excited to see what you guys come out with and the the more listings that follow. Where can we find a list of these CDRs available and and find out more? Uh, Great, great question. And I'll I'll maybe give you a a couple extra pieces of information for the crowd as well. Uh, There is uh, a page on our website. CIBC has one as well. Uh, if you're on uh, the, the services section of our website, neo.inc, 
in, in raising assets. There's a section there dedicated specifically to Canadian depository receipts. And there it's got, you know, a nice description, how they work, what they work, a couple frequently asked questions. And you can see the full grid of uh, Neo Exchange listed CDRs uh, separately and, and maybe good for the, the crowd to have on hand as well. Inside uh, the live section on the navigation, there's a, a link that will pop out for what we refer to as our listings directory. And there you can see the full range of CDRs, Neo Exchange public companies, and Neo Exchange listed ETFs. Uh, altogether now, I think over 180 tickers covering all of your favorite sectors. Uh, if you're looking in the company space, you know, we've got one of the latest. Uh, crypto trading platforms that just IPO'd on Tuesday this week. We've got some really interesting ones in the psychedelic space that, that are worth a look, plus 100 and change ETFs from some of the largest asset managers in Canada, all certainly worth a look. And if you've ever got any questions on it, as as you did, very happy to come back in, chat on, on some of those uh, anytime you like, and, and make sure we keep you and, and your audience up to speed with all the progress here at the NEO Exchange. Awesome. That's wonderful. Yeah, I'm I'm looking at that page you're talking about right now. And what we were talking about before, a share of, of Google, you know, is thousands of dollars in US. And right now the Neo listed CDR is twenty five fifty nine as the latest close. And uh, the latest price today was twenty five ninety six. So that gives you an idea and it's gonna move with the underlying asset of actual alphabet Google stock. And that's something that we talk about so much on this podcast as well is make sure you know, you know, the underlying asset of what you're investing in with some of these instruments or products that are out there. And I like this one because it couldn't be more clear. You are buying Google stock when you buy the Google CDR. So I, I can appreciate that. Eric, thanks so much for coming on the show and uh, we'll have to have you on soon and, and we're excited to, to follow what you guys are building. Absolute pleasure. Thank you very much for having me and uh, here anytime. Simon, that was, that was awesome. Um, Eric's really well-spoken and he is laying out really the basis for the CDRs. And the CDRs offer the ability for Canadians to enter some of these large cap U.S. stocks that the friction on them is very – like it is so much friction for Canadian investors to invest in shares of Amazon, for instance. 3500 U.S. dollars is not a small investment for most of the population, even self-directed investors that have a lot of net worth. $3,500 – for $1 cost average in USD presents a lot of friction. Even if Amazon might be a phenomenal company, we're kind of arbitrarily putting ourselves out of it without having fractional shares. So I think it's a great innovation. Yeah, yeah. I think it's a great innovation too. I mean, the only other option would be something like the PowerShares QQQ. But even then, you're not owning just uh, the one company you want to own. So you're owning, uh, you know, most of the NASDAQ by owning those. Uh, and 
the QQQ is really not cheap in itself. It's 300 and something per share USD. Um, so this is a great alternative. I think BMO may have an ETF that's kind of targeted on uh, tech as well. But there's limited options and you can't really handpick specific companies. So the CDR is a great option for that. It is. So if you're on your brokerage and you're looking at some US stock and then all of a sudden you realize, whoa, it's trading in Canadian dollars for 28 Canadian that's because you're looking at the Canadian depository receipt. It's a, a new thing that came out and CIBC is backing it. All right, let's talk about the last segment for the show today, Simon. This was brought up because because of the Lightspeed short report and then him talking about it so much on the call. And it, it kind of kind of gives you some eh, like some hesitancy towards uh, the strategy and the management and the business moving forward. So do you want to just uh, take us through what you're thinking here? Yeah, yeah, that's exactly it. So I was thinking back of uh, what Dax was saying about the short report, even though Lightspeed had already sent out a press release in late September after the short report came out to address it. In my view, that was the perfect thing to do then. You get it out of the way. You don't touch back on it. You address it. That's it. That's all. But then Dax talked about it again in their most recent call. So in my view, the only time a CEO should be talking about share price or when there's something like a short report which affects the share price is really when the company will be buying back shares because they have the money to do so. And in their view, these shares are undervalued. Of course, if a CEO mentions this, you'll want to make sure that the company has a good track record of doing share buybacks because we've talked about it before. There's other ways of using excess money. You can either pay a dividend, you can reinvest in the business. There's, there's definitely more than just doing share buybacks. The big reason for me that it's a red flag, it's because it worries me that a CEO is focusing too much on what the stock is doing. And to me, that's a sign that the CEO is just looking way too short term. Uh, in my view, the CEO should be looking to create show shareholder value by building a great and profitable business for the long term. He shouldn't care about short-term stock movement because the market isn't looking five-plus years in the future. We talked about this recently. The market oftentimes, yes, is forward-looking, but what, maybe a year, two years at most that they're forward-looking. So if you're building a great business, even if it takes five-plus years for the market to realize it, the market will eventually realize it. And that's that's the type of business I personally want to be invested in. If you think about an Amazon, for example, for the longest period, Amazon was losing money, but they were investing so much in the business, building this huge logistics network, this huge online platform. And now we're really seeing how it's paying dividend. And where a CEO is so concerned about the short-term stock price movement, um, to me, that can lead to decision makings that's not good for the business to focus on the short term and can be really destructive in terms of the the long-term prospects of the business. There's a lot of red flags in general when a CEO is short-term focused. I'm trying to play long-term games with long-term people, especially in the stocks I own. You know, the... Long, playing long-term games with long-term people is a great way to build wealth, 
especially when you are putting your capital behind them. And this isn't a knock on on Dax so much. I mean, he's been great. I mean, he's obviously a solid entrepreneur. He knows what he's doing. This is his business is his baby. So I, I can see why he's a little choked up about it. And this is just kind of a, a conversation piece around CEOs that are short-term focused and worrying about the stock price, talking about the stock price. It's just really not relevant for long-term shareholders. It's it's really not because long-term shareholders are saying, okay, that's great, but what's happening with the business? You know, the share price is not the business. So what's happening with the business? And this goes uh, without saying is, if you see a CEO, and you'll see this a lot in junior mining or stocks on the on the TSX venture, is CEOs that are doing lots of interviews about the sh- about the shares, about the stock. It's like legal stock promotion, and that is ding 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 red flag, especially if it's paid advertising, and this exists. It's I'm seeing it all over the place. Uh, you know, they're they're setting a lookalike audience on Facebook and saying this person invests, they're interested in stocks, they're potentially interested in gambling at this point. And uh, let's serve them ads on our junior mining exploration company uh, about the shares and about how awesome our CEO is and, and you know, sell them a story. Red flag, instant red flag. So that's not what we're saying what's happening with Lightspeed, but we're a bit off put here with Dax bringing it up again, and I know we've already talked about that, but it's it's concerning, and it talks about a bigger story, which is align your por- portfolio with long term thinkers. Yeah, yeah, super well put. I think, and exactly what I was thinking too. I'm not trying to get back on, you know, just just add on to what we said about Dax da Silva. Like clearly he's built a a very good business. We'll see where it goes in the future. Uh, But it was just that aspect of just bring it back forward so early in the, the earnings calls that was a bit concerning on my end. But the other, as we, you were talking, I was kind of thinking, I guess the other situation where I'd be okay with a CEO talking about the share price is if, the share price has had a huge run and they're actually using that to uh, do a secondary offering to be able to invest in the business and just capitalizing on the high share price, getting more financing while not diluting too much. So that's, I think, is a strategic move and can make a lot of sense as long as they have, you know, good ideas of where to invest the money and just not issue shares just to issue shares to have an actual goal they want to accomplish with that new infusion of cash. So that's probably the other the other part. But you'll see, like you said, you can watch interviews of various businesses. And I remember watching an interview with the CEO of Wellheld Technologies. And the guy was asking him like, oh, yeah, you know, what's going on with the share price? And the CEO like just, you know, continued on just answer the question kept talking about the share price to me the correct way to or the way i want a ceo to approach it is say look we're not concerned with the share price we know that long term people the market will see the value in the business that's what we're building that's the answer i want a ceo to to say when when asked that type of question i actually emailed the ceo of MTY food group like five plus years ago 
And the stock. <laughs> of course you did. <laughs> the stock was down for no reason. I was trying to investigate the business. I'm like, what is this roll up of food court companies? Why has the stock been a 10 bagger, like close to a hundred bagger actually? And it's down 10 to 20% today. No acquisition news. And I just sent, I just fired off an email to investor relations going like, Hey, I'm just investigating in the business. Uh, so there seems to be some, a lot of volume on this thing and no acquisition news. No, nothing. And Eric, oh, I'm forgetting his name. Eric, the CEO, last name, but Eric, the CEO of MTY Food Group responded to the general <laughs> investor relations uh, inbox. And he responded with one line saying, Braden, I have no idea why the, the market acts in the way it does in the short term. Brilliant. Brilliant. I wanted to buy shares immediately. Um, that's perfect, right? That's exactly the person you want running the business long term. So I don't even know why I sent that email out five years ago. This was so stupid thinking back on it. But um, that was an awesome response. Yeah, I think his name is uh, Eric Lefebvre. Yes, that's right. Yeah. That's it. Yeah. Another another good French Canadian. What's with all the French Canadian roll-ups and why are they all such good performers? It's like, a perfect answer. Yeah. Don't worry about the short-term fluctuation about the market. Like we've said it before, short-term the market is a voting machine, long-term it's a weighing machine. So you want it to to weigh the company correctly long-term. That's right. And this aligns everything that we talk about with with owning businesses for the long term. If if the if the person running the business is thinking long term, you're off to a great start right out of the gate. All right, guys, thanks so much for listening. We talked about position weighting, uh, how many stocks that we own. CEOs talking about their stock, and an awesome interview with uh, with Eric. And I uh, hope you guys enjoy it. If you have not checked out Stratosphere, go to stratosphereinvesting.com. Or if that's too hard to spell, getstockmarket.com will also bring you there. Try it out. It's completely free. This year, I am. it's my mission this month to talk with 20 of you one-on-one on a video call. If you go on Stratosphere and you join the community, there's a link there to book a call with me. Um, and if you have done a trial and you want to join the paid membership, that's totally totally up to you. You can use code TCI to get 15% off. Thanks so much for listening. We'll see you in a few days. Take care. Bye-bye. The Canadian Investor Podcast should not be taken as investment or financial advice. Braden and Simone may own securities or assets mentioned on this podcast. Always make sure to do your own research and due diligence before making investment or financial decisions.